Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to class number seven of The Shaping of Middle-Earth as we prepare to discuss the final chapter in volume four of the history of Middle-Earth. I had to check the title, the cover page to make sure I was remembering the correct number of the volume. Welcome back everybody. Um, I hope that, uh, I, I just wanted to, to say briefly at the beginning how much I enjoyed last week's class. That was so much fun. Um, I, I, and I, uh, I don't know. I wanted to sort of comment on how much I have been learning, uh, in this class. The reading of The Shaping of Middle-Earth with you guys this time through has just been, uh, really somewhere between, uh, enlightening and mind-blowing for me. I, I have, this, uh, book has come alive for me more than it ever has before. Um, I mean, I've read the bits before, uh, but I've never really sat down and read the whole volume cover to cover. Um, and really, and done what that really kind of forces me to do, which is really to kind of think about them in the kind of integrative way that we have been doing. And wow, what a difference! It's just been uh, it's just been really neat. So, uh, just thanks again to you guys for uh, uh, for uh, spurring me to to do this. It's uh, it's it's been it's been fantastic. Oh yeah, Josh, if you've not uh, if you've not done the other classes uh earlier on in uh in this series for before today yeah you totally should do that it's been it's been it's been a lot of fun um anyway let's finish the book though not yet the course today so um uh brief announcement first of all i want to apologize i, I was i meant to have all the stuff for dracula ready but it's not quite ready yet and i have to admit i'm kind of dragging my feet because I'm still deciding on which movies I want to do, which is probably not the best reason, but I, of course, needless to say, I can't really forbear uh, to talk about uh, at least a couple of the Dracula films, uh, film adaptations as well. So, um, I'm, uh, I'm still, I'm still sorting that, but I promise I'm going to stop dithering and make up my mind on that, uh, very, very soon. So, um, I, I will, will We'll get back to you on that very quickly, I promise. But don't forget to get your copy of Public Domain Dracula and um, and uh, start reading it. Yeah, both uh, both Yana and Sharon Hoffer are uh, suggesting we should totally watch a Christopher Lee version. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, that would be fun. That would be fun. I may, uh, I, I may, I may be swayed uh, in such a way. Uh, <laughs> that's I, I, uh, I, I kind of feel a, a little susceptible on that point. Um, but anyway, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Boy, okay, two people were just suggesting. Both Josh and Matthew were suggesting Dracula dead and loving it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't know about that. Um, the problem is, I mean, of course, I want to spend time on the book, uh, you know, to 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 make sure we really spend lots of time. Uh, and then Arthur and Sharon Hoff, in at the same moment, suggested Love at First Bite. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, 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 I, you know, I, I certainly want to spend uh, a, a, a bunch of time on the book, really reading the book carefully. Um, and I, I don't want to have the class end up being like 15 weeks long, so I'm going to have to be a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, 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 restrained. I'm trying to restrict myself to no more than four film versions, which we could do one a week, um, for the last four weeks of the class. That's my goal. Uh, we'll see. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I can, I can restrict it to four. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to, I'll try to pick my four. Anyway, 
let's go on and finish uh, uh, the shaping of Middle Earth, uh, however, while we're still here. So I wanted to start this week with a couple passages from the the, the, the from like the commentaries and stuff at the end of the Annals of Valinor, uh, just mostly because these are passages I didn't get to last time, and I really, uh, I, you know, it, it, it would be... I wouldn't want to leave them behind because they're relevant to the discussion that directly relevant to the discussions we were having last time. Um, so, um, okay. At first sight, it is puzzling that in the preamble that in the preamble the annals of Valinor are called Penas, since the Penas or Quenta is clearly intended to represent a different literary tradition from the annals, or at least a different mode of presenting the material. The preamble goes on to say, however, that this book, Penas, is divided into three parts. The first part is Valinorilumian, that is, Godethle's Yearyatal, the Annals of Valinor. The second is Beleriandes Yearyatal, i.e. Annals of Beleriand. And the third is Quenta Noldorinwa, or Penas non Goilith, that is, Noldel Faraku, the history of the Noldoran elves. Thus, here at any rate, Penas, Quenta, is used in both a stricter and a wider sense. The whole opus that Althwin had translated in Tol Erisea is the Penas, Quenta, the history. But the term is also used more narrowly of the Penas non Goilith, or the Quenta Noldorinwa, which may be thought of as the Silmarillion proper, as opposed to the Annals. That's, of course, what we've been calling the Quenta all this time. In fact, in an addition to the very brief Old English version 3 of the Annals of Valinor, it is expressly said, This third part is also called Silmarillion, that is, the history of the Eorklanstanas. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um... <laughs> no. Arthur's got Dracula on the brain. No, no, uh, no, no. The uh, the the Noldor Faraku has nothing to do with Nosferatu. Forget it, Arthur. Absolutely no connection whatsoever. <laughs> anyway, okay, 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 okay. Um, so you see how this works, right? Um, this is uh, we can see here a uh, an expression. Of well, of course, last time we weren't considering the annals of Beleriand at all, right? So we were only looking at the two things. That is the relationship between the annals and the Quenta, and so we uh, we um, we have here um, his delineation of these separate traditions, and obviously the annals of Valinor and the annals of Beleriand are related to each other, even in the um, in, even in the Anglo-Saxon, you can see that second word, which means tale of years, right? Um, so you've got the, 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 the tale of years of the god, of, of the god home, of the god land, um, the land of the gods, and you've got the tale of years of Beleriand, right? Um, so those are obviously related to each other generically, right? The, those are the same genre, whereas the, uh, the, the, the penis, the history of the Noldoran elves, is a different genre, okay? So the idea of these things coming, of these two different things coming together, and having uh, having the old English opus of Alfwina, right, consisting of both of those things, or in fact all three of these things, um, this just kind of puts together a little bit more clearly some of the things. Now, it d this doesn't say anything really about the kind of sequencing, about the progress in Tolkien's own mind, sort of the 
this passage doesn't answer the question that we were trying to answer last time. Like, why did he write? The, okay, fine. So we have these two different traditions, right? The 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 tale of years, the annals tradition, and the um, and the Quenta tradition. Why did he do it? Right. That's what we were talking about last time. This passage doesn't answer that, um, but it does, you know, lay out these two different two different but parallel traditions, and it does use Alfwina as the connection between the two of them, right? Um, but two other small notes that I would make about this. One is, of course, I trust that you noticed, especially if you've never come across this little snippet before, um, the uh, the Anglo-Saxon translation of Silmaril as Eorklinstan, right? Um, and as Christopher Tolkien uh, 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 emphasizes, in which you could probably guess even without his help, that's of course the word that the the word that Arkenstone, the name Arkenstone, comes from Eorkenstan, um, which just means the holy or blessed stone, um, the holy jewels, as they're sometimes called in English. Um, so this, of course, raises the 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 sort of obvious question when. This is why it's. I, I always find it. Let me say the same thing a different way. This is why I always find it so hard to answer the question when somebody says, uh, "Do you think the Arkenstone is a Silmaril?" And I'm like, "Well, uh, it depends on what you mean by that, right? Do I mean that within the framework of Middle Earth? You know, if you mean within the framework of the history of Middle Earth." The Arkenstone is like the jewel of Mithros that has worked its way back up through the Earth's crust and reappeared, uh, you know, resurfaced at the Lonely Mountain. Uh, no, no, uh, no, that is not true. Uh, definitely not. And you can tell. You can tell from how, you know, once Tolkien applies himself, and you'll recall, you know, back before, he wasn't even really asking the question what happened to the Silmarils. Remember, he was kind of late to that question. Like, the Silmarils just kind of dropped out of the Book of Lost Tales, and he never even came back to them. Um, once he asked himself that question, once we, you know, get in the sketch, him working through the question of what happens to the Silmarils, um, it's, it gets really, um, it gets really plain that he wants, you know, that, that, that sort of final destiny question, right? One's going to be in the sky, one's going to be in the sea, one's going to be in the earth, and those are the final resting places until the end of the world when everything is, you know, when they're all gathered together again, um, so, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Tom Hillman says, if the Arkenstone were a Silmaril, wouldn't Maglor have shown up before the Battle of the Five or, or yeah, Six Armies? I guess six, I guess, if Maglor counts as an entirely separate one. Yana was just saying the same thing. A son of Feanor would surely have come calling uh, if that turned out to be, uh, uh, to be, to be a Silmaril. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, no. It's, 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 it's clearly not. I mean, it's, it's, it just does not work within the frame. <clears throat> And you can tell, of course, from the obvious negative evidence. That is, Tolkien never said it was. I mean, if he, I mean, the Silmarils are so important to him. If he were actually sneaking that in, um, even if nobody had read the Silmarillion and so don't really know what the Silmarils are, he'd have said, right? I mean, it's clearly not. Um, so within the world, within the framework of Middle-earth, is this a Silmaril? No, not a Silmaril, Right. Um, however, outside the frame of Middle-earth, within the frame of Tolkien's own creative progression, is this a Silmaril? Well, yeah, obviously, in a sense, right? That is to say, the Arkenstone within the, within the, the Hobbit 
is plainly a recycling of the Silmaril idea. He even uses some. He even uses some of the uh, 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 some of the same language to describe it. I mean, it's it's he's plainly recycling the concept of the Silmaril as we see him recycling so many things: the Elven King and and uh, and Elrond and Gondolin and all those things. He's not um, he's not yet really bringing that that story, the story of the Hobbit, into that world. He's recycling that material in The Hobbit because he's got it. It's probably never going to see the light of day, um, and uh, and then off uh, off you go. Exactly, Yana. He can freely do this, considering that uh, as far as he knew, no one would ever read about the Silmarils. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, even the recycle. I mean, so the recycling of names like uh, Arthur, as you uh, as you know, you mentioned. Legolas Greenleaf, of course. Legolas Greenleaf being a recycling of that uh, far-sighted elf from Gondolin back in the fall of Gondolin in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, so, uh, uh, so anyway, there's, there's, it's all um, he does this right, and it's plain that the Arkenstone is a recycling of the Silmarils. He loved the Silmarils. He wanted to work that concept in, so he put that concept in. Even the way in which it becomes. Uh, you know, Thorin's sort of obsession with it and his willingness to go to war uh, for the sake of recovering it, even with people who should be his allies, right? I mean, we, we see him recycling these ideas um, from these older stories um, without just actually indulging in them, right? Without actually transforming his Hobbit story into a tale of the Elder Days, which, although it does undergo a transformation, that's not really the transformation it undergoes. Anyway, as I say, this is always a, a complicated question to answer because, of course, I'm not trying to argue that it's a coincidence, right, that the Arkenstone is called the Arkenstone. Um, the name clearly shows that he had the Silmarils in mind when he met, when he did that. But, um, anyway, uh, we'll... Uh, uh, so I just wanted to make sure to uh, to sort of acknowledge that. Also, one other small note on the subject of Old English names, uh, just that I wanted to to kind of bring up here. Did you notice the pattern? Um, notice that in the uh, in the Anglo-Saxon, this is again, this is back to the Annals of Valinor. Still, we still haven't f- officially moved on to the Annals of Beleriand yet. Um, in the Annals of Valinor, in the Anglo-Saxon stuff. Even if you didn't read through the Anglo-Saxon text, even if you just looked at Christopher Tolkien's commentary on the Anglo-Saxon text, he points out that the names used in the Anglo-Saxon version, <clears throat> in the Old English version of the Annals of Valinor, are very different from the set of Old English names, that, that name list that was given back after the Quenta, right, with the Anglo-Saxon stuff that we got after the Quenta. Um, he had that name list. We went over some of the, remember the chart I made and everything, right? Um... And you'll remember that one of the really cool elements of that chart, in some cases, it w- those names were sort of stating the, you know, kind of translating the main essence of the, of, of the thing. Like, we remember we were looking at, like, the god of the hunt, right, was, was the lord of the hunt was Orome, and the lord of corpses was Mandos, remember that. Um, but then some of them were really cool, how Tolkien was clearly trying to sort of play on the terms um, to do something which was almost like transliteration, right, to keep the same kind of consonantal combinations, even consonant-vowel combinations, into a word that would work in Anglo-Saxon and which would have a meaning which was consonant with the original, but it was not merely a translation, right? Um, 
so you know, we, 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 were, we were looking, and I was sort of admiring many of those things. I can remember Balrog and uh, what he did with, uh, you know, Bolgan for Bauglier, and remember all, all, the, all, the, all those kinds of things. Well, as Christopher points out, in the Annals of Valinor Anglo-Saxon, we don't get that. We don't, we don't, we don't get, the Old English there does not contain those names. The names that we get in, uh, in, in that Anglo-Saxon are more purely translations. They don't, they're not, they're not poetic in that same way. Um, and I find that kind of interesting. Again, like the fact that, remember there was that word, I can't even remember it exactly, but uh, I, I had a really hard time pronouncing it. Um, the one which was, which, which was an Anglo-Saxon word put together, which almost was Silmarils, right? Remember that? Well, instead of that, right, with this other poetic meaning, um, he just uses Eorklinsdanas, which is just holy jewels, right? Holy stones. Um, which, again, is a more literal rendering, a more literal translation of the phrase that's used to describe the Silmarils. So, uh, so we see that pattern in the names, and that shift in the naming pattern in the Anglo-Saxon, in the Annals of Valinor, strikes me as another piece of evidence, potentially, um, to support Christopher's suggestion that the Old English version of the Annals of Valinor came first. That is, we have the Anglo-Saxon version, which is, it's not trying to render the Elvish names in cunning ways. It's just, this is a straight-up Anglo-Saxon account of this, right? And so it's using comparatively simple simple Anglo-Saxon names, which are simply translations. Whereas, when we have the Quenta, which clearly existed in modern English first, right? And then we want to sort of show some Old English adaptation of that. You know, when we want to take this thing that already existed and put it into Anglo-Saxon, then we do cunning things. But if we're do, when we're just starting composing in Anglo-Saxon, the Anglo-Saxon names, at least, are simpler. And then they get rendered back into modern English. Uh, that just seems to me to... Um, to 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 fit. <laughs> Karina is wondering if she can use holy jewels uh, as an explanation. You can, but there's always the risk that Maglor will come after you. So just be advised of that. Um, uh, but other than that, you should be fine. Um, anyway, other thing. Second very brief thing that I wanted to point to. Um, uh, the My subtitle here three books of lore. Um, you remember what Bilbo gives to Frodo in Rivendell? Right? Um, in The Return of the King? He gives him the Red Book, right? What will become the Red Book of Westmarch. And he gives him three books of lore, right? Translations from the Elvish by B.B. Um, now, of course, the identification of Bilbo's translations from the Elvish with the Silmarillion is pretty clear. And uh, if you recall at the very beginning of the Book of Lost Tales class, in the preface to Volume 1 of the History of Middle-earth, of the first volume of the Book of Lost Tales, Christopher basically apologizes for not making that identification explicit in the published Silmarillion. Um, basically sort of confesses that he was kind of too timid. He was cautious, and perhaps overcautious about it, and he should have just stated confidently what seems pretty obvious, um, even if Tolkien didn't explicitly write that, that he probably had enough evidence just to go ahead and, 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 and make that clear. But now the question is, is there any significance to the three books? Why three books? Why has Bilbo written three... Tr- three... Now... It may simply just refer to the voluminousness of it, right? I mean, he his translations from the Elvish are so extensive that it it, it needed three volumes, and there's no necessarily no not necessarily any other 
purpose for the three volumes. Um, but today's stuff, the stuff we've been talking about here, makes me wonder, right? That is, uh, sometimes I hear people talk about... Um, because, again, they identify it with the Silmarillion, which means they identify it with the published Silmarillion, right? Um, so, you know, it's like, oh, you know, maybe it's like, you know, the, the, the Quenta and, you know, the, the Quenta Silmarillion and the, you know, the Aino Indole and, you know, like, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Nah, clearly not, right? Clearly not. That's, that's obviously not what Bilbo wrote. Could it have been this? Could it have been the Penas, the Annals of Valinor, and the Annals of Beleriand? Possibly. Possibly. We have precedence for three books of lore, right? Alfwina brought three books of lore home with him from Tolerasea, right? Um, so, maybe, maybe. Now, Josh, you know, yeah, we're not talking about Numenor at all yet, right? So, probably uh, Bilbo had something to say about Numenor. Maybe, you know quite lost. But I just think it's interesting, right, that uh, we do see this concept. At the very least, it's a coincidence, right? Um, And maybe it's totally unconnected. But the idea that at this point, right, in the 30s, the Silmarillion is like three volumes in Tolkien's own mind, right, is kind of cool, right? So, anyway, just kind of wanted to throw that out, probably nothing to it, uh, but, uh, but at least that, that uh, uh, you know, perhaps that's a concept that might have its origin here. Um, one last brief thing before we move on to the Annals of Beleriand. Another note about those, uh, those names. This, again, this is in the commentary on the Anglo-Saxon Annals of Valinor, still not the Annals of Beleriand yet. This version, on a single manuscript page, gives a slightly different form of the first 20-odd lines of version 2. This is the version 3 text. It is much later than 2, as is shown by Melkor, not Melko, but was nonetheless taken directly from it, as is shown by the continued absence of Ossé from the list of the Valar, uh, see note to line 17 in version 2. Later changes penciled on version 1 are here embodied in the text. Pengalod for Pengalod, Tathrobel for Tavrobel, Melkor for Melko. Do you see the significance of this? So he wrote this later. Um, uh, Christopher mentions he dates the shift from Melko to Melkor. That was late. It was in the 50s that that happened. So you see, see what this means? This means that the Anglo-Saxon version, the Old English version of the Annals of Valinor, he was still coming back and revising years later. Right? So in, like, 15, 20 years down the road, when he's going to come back to the Annals of Valinor, he comes back to... he comes back to the Anglo-Saxon text and does a new... and starts, at least, a new version of it. Right? That to me is really interesting, and it seems to me to uh, it, it seems I say you know I, I, in my subtitle I called it suspicious. It certainly seems to me to suggest that, um, okay, not suggest. We already had suggestions. It supplies further evidence, I think, that the Anglo-Saxon text is sort of the primary text, right? It's not like a whimsical afterthought. 
Um, as it kind of seems to me that the trans not well whimsical is perhaps an unfair word, but it seems to me that the old English stuff after the Quenta is more of an afterthought, right? Like the the modern English text is the primary thing, and then he's he's doing an Anglo-Saxon thing to accompany it because it's Alfwina and he likes that and he's thinking about that, right? Um, but again, it's clear you've got the main text, and then on the side he's doing he's there's we're we're having fun with Anglo-Saxon on the side, right? The Annals of Valinor are different. There, it's not. I, 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 in other words, I'm putting forward this passage as further evidence, in Christopher's analysis anyway, that, um, well, no, this is my analysis of Christopher's data, uh, that the Old English text of the Annals of Valinor is, in Tolkien's mind, the primary thing, because that's what he's going to come back and revise. Um, so, that's um, uh, fun. I think that's just... just another really interesting kind of piece of evidence there that the Old English came first. Now, with that in mind, and uh, 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 thinking of all this stuff and bringing it forward to the Annals of Beleriand, in the Annals of Beleriand, we get a new piece of the puzzle. So, um, (laughs) yeah, Tom Hillman says, Christopher is going to reveal that his father did finish the Silmarillion in Old English and published that to much acclaim and confusion. Uh, yeah, yeah. Could you imagine, like, could you imagine if that's, like, the final thing that Christopher Tolkien were to publish, right? And here is the complete Silmarillion in Anglo-Saxon. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. That would be kind of amazing. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Josh Ramsey says nothing would make me happier. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, okay. Annals of Beleriand. Okay, so we get a new piece. How does that piece fit? Okay. Let's see. How does this piece fit? Christopher, help us out with this. This is the only further fragment of, of Alfwina's work in Tol Erisea in his own language. Its relation to the modern English version is puzzling, since though it largely corresponds closely to AB2, it also has features of the AB1 text. Those are the two versions of the Annals of Beleriand. For instance, the defiance of Fingolfin before Angband and the withdrawal of the Feanorians to the southern shore of the lake is absent from NL1, and the date... One through C, or, you know, I through C, one through one hundred, follows AB one, whereas Merith Adarthad in NL twenty agrees with the Annals of Balerion two. Uh, the Annals is otherwise as in AB one. The NL fifty is a confused mixture. The simple explanation that my father made the Old English version after AB one, but before AB two, and hence the headnote to AB two translation of Alfwina, comes up against the difficulty that in the Old English the siege of Angband lasted. Two hundyara othama, right? Two hundred years or more, right? Whereas AB two has one hundred amended to two hundred, but the matter is not of importance. Okay, okay. Do we follow this? Two things, right? Thing number one. Christopher seems fairly clear here, uh, based on the evidence that the and 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 you see the evidence that he's, that he's using, right? When Tolkien wrote something, crossed it out in pencil and wrote a change above it, right, or in the margin, it's clear that that text is an older text than one which does the same thing but incorporates the change into the primary text, right? That version, the version that incorporates it initially, is clearly is clearly a revision, an older version, or a, a later version, rather, than the one with the bits crossed out and, 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 and the stuff added in pencil. Okay. Um, so... By looking at those kinds of... Pa- he's, he's arguing that the Anglo-Saxon 
text, the Old English version of the Annals of Beleriand mine, not the Annals of Alnor, of the Annals of Beleriand, is later than the first modern English text, the full AB1 text, right, that goes all the way through the end, not the fragmentary AB2 text. Um, he says it's a bit of a muddle, it's, it's, it's a little hard to tell where it falls between AB1, you know, uh, you know, the, in those last few sentences, he's sort of admitting that there is some evidence that maybe it came after AB2 rather than before AB2. Um, I'm going to... Uh, um, <laughs> no, 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 Arthur, it's not like that. Arthur says, the matter is not of importance. There's a long paragraph of my life I'll never get back. No, no, no. He's not saying the whole thing isn't important. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he is suggesting that uh, this... That, that one fact is not particularly important, or rather, that it's the question of the three texts, right? The, the first modern English version, the Anglo-Saxon version, and the second modern English version. Exactly what order they were written, you know, was, were, were AB2 and, and, and the Old English version written at the same time? Some here and some there. Did it definitely come first? Did it definitely come second? He's saying that the, the, the final rankings there and the sorting out of every detail there is not really crucial. But what is what he is pretty clear about is that the Old English version does seem to come after the Modern English version for the Annals of Beleriand, right? Okay, so, so one thing that we start off... So we had our revelation, right, about the Anglo-Saxon text coming first and how this was Alfwina's version and how, so how, you know, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle there of the Annals of Valinor was the primary text, and the modern English version is just a, is just a rendering of it, right? And, and we talked about how that seemed to help clarify why Tolkien would do this in the way that he was doing it in the Annals of Valinor, uh, the way that it was this kind of neither, f- neither, 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 uh, 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 neither f- fish nor fowl um, uh, uh, thing, that, as we were talking about last time. So, thing number one, that we learn about the Annals of Beleriand here, it's not the case in the Annals of Beleriand, right? The Annals of Beleriand, the modern English seems to come first. So the, 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 that first completed text, AB1, is the primary text. That's what he wrote, right? And then he rendered it in Anglo-Saxon. So what was true of the Annals of Valinor is not true of the Annals of Beleriand. So wait, does this throw our, our whole concept into doubt, Right? Does this undermine? Um, does this undermine what we were concluding last time? No, because you remember what to, what Christopher threw out there near the beginning, uh, you know, like kind of casually. The Annals of Beleriand came before the Annals of Valinor. Period. He did them first. Is the textual evidence suggests that the Annals of Beleriand came after the Quenta and before the Annals of Valinor. The Annals of Valinor were written last. Why, you might ask, is the Annals of Beleriand chapter 7 and the Annals of Valinor chapter 6? I know that was the question that I was asking uh, when looking at this. But, of course, Christopher Tolkien is presented with this dilemma. Right? Which one does he present to the readers first? Does he present them in chronological order of... Tolkien's composition, or does he present them in chronological order of the story? And he chose the latter, right? So that you could read through the early, the annals of the early period, right, of the Valinorian period, and then read through the annals of Beleriand. Exactly, Nancy. Narrative coherence 
that's defensible, right? Totally defensible. But if your interest, as my interest has been, is to sort of try to work out the meta narrative here, to try to understand the ways or see if we can come up with some theories about how the Silmarillion is unfolding in Tolkien's mind during this period, it throws things off, right? So, this is one thing that we got to keep in mind. We've got to keep in mind that, so when we, when we think about it, when we piece all these things together, when we fit the Annals of Beleriand into the larger picture, we need to keep in mind it comes before the Annals of Beleriand, and I think that that is extremely important. right? And then uh, this is, of course, where we come back to... Uh, 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 Christopher's commentary about the Old English, right? So, so sequence. Sequence. Quenta. Maps and Emmerkanta and stuff. Modern English. Annals of Beleriand. Old English Annals of Beleriand. Old English Annals of Valinor. Modern English Annals of Valinor. Okay, we'll come back to this at the end a little bit. I want to look at some more details first. Um, but, um, let's, uh, let's look at one of I... I hope it doesn't seem... <laughs> Roy is making me feel self-conscious. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm complaining too much about Christopher Tolkien or wanting to correct him. Um, but having said that, I have a complaint. Um, so I'm just... just an aside here. L- let us pause for... We'll come back to the Annals of Bolarian for a second. Let me pause here for... Uh, complaint? Confession? Anyway, I wanted to point this out because I find it confusing, and so just in case you also find it confusing... I wanted to just raise it. And you probably don't have the uh, problem with this, uh, but I find it annoying and difficult. And so I just wanted to bring it out into the open. And that is, the way that Christopher Tolkien refers to the published Silmarillion seems to me to change in his commentary in the later parts of the of the shaping of Middle-earth here. He has been... I, throughout, I feel like he's been doing a really good job of keeping the timeline clear, right? That is to say, um, when he was talking about the Book of Lost Tales, for instance, you know, I've mentioned many times, I don't even tend to spend much time in our classes going over the whole, like, here's how this story differs, here's exactly how this story differs from the published Silmarillion, because Christopher Tolkien covers that, and he covers that stuff really, really well. Um, but, um, so I, I usually don't even talk about it, but when when he does do that, and he does a good job of saying, okay, here's what, here's what the story is here, it's going to change in these ways, right? In the published Silmarillion, this is, you know, so this is the later version of the story, so we can see the differences between the earlier and the later version of the story. And you'll remember when we were talking about the sketch in the Quenta, he did a really good job of placing those texts chronologically between the other two, right? Looking back at the Book of Lost Tales, so you can see how it's changed since the Book of Lost Tales, and yet there are still these differences yet to come, right? It's still different from the published Silmarillion in these other ways. I, and again, maybe this is just me, but I found the way that he was talking about the published Silmarillion, it just really jumped out at me in particular in this chapter, more confusing than it was before. Let me, let me try to give an example of what I mean. Anno 105. This is his commentary mind. In this Anno are described for the first time Morgoth's tests of the strength and watchfulness of the besiegers, referred to in Anno 51 and which remain in the Silmarillion. 
The first of these is there said to have taken place nearly a hundred years since the, Dag- the Dagor Aglareb, not as here fifty-four. But the route taken by Morgoth's host is the same in both accounts, southwards down the coast between Arid Lomond to the sea and the Firth of Drengist. The story of the emergence of Glomond, not yet full-grown, from the ga- gates of Angband by night, the flight of the elves to Arid Wethian and Tower Nadanian, and the route of Glomond by Fingon's horsed archers, is very close to the account in the Silmarillion, where, however, it took place a hundred years later, after the attack that ended at Drengist. In AB2 again, the time was only half as long. These differences are associated with further great lengthening of the duration of the siege. I don't know if, even if this passage does a really good job of, 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 uh, of pointing to what I'm trying to point to, but in a nutshell, it, I found myself getting confused. There were times when he was speaking of the differences between the annals and the published Silmarillion, as if the annals were a variant instead of the other way around. Like I, It was the chronology, the larger chronology that was kind of getting confusing. Instead of saying, here's the story in the annals, it's going to be changing in these ways. Right? Um, uh, instead, he kept comparing it back to the Silmarillion Almost and in at times, and again, I think it was just his phrasing. In times, he made it sound like these are the ways that the annals are taking the published Silmarillion story and changing it, which is obviously the opposite, right? And one of the things, one of the reasons that I found this kind of most conspicuous is that as we've gone through the shaping of Middle Earth, obviously we're getting closer and closer to the published Silmarillion text. And remember, the published Silmarillion, the whole premise of the history of Middle Earth series, right, is in order to show us where the published Silmarillion comes from. Although, I mean, that, okay, that's one of the points of the, of the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, and again, this is back to that initial preface that Tolkien, that Christopher Tolkien wrote in Volume 1, um, where basically he's kind of answering the challenge where people who are reading the Silmarillion when it was published in 77 are, you know, reading it and saying, okay, this is cool, but how much of this is really Tolkien and how much of this is Christopher? Right? And Christopher's saying, all right, look, I'll show you. Right? I'll show you where all this stuff came from and where I got this. And he's really clear about the fact, and he refers to this on many occasions, has already in, in the four volumes we've read. At many points, he refers to the fact that the publication of the Silmarillion was really, involved a lot of really difficult editorial choices. And remember, we even looked at some concrete examples of this, where Christopher Tolkien admitted to interpolating some stuff. Remember with Gondolin and the blocking up of the, of the, the way of escape, right? Where he interpolated some stuff into the Quenta text, which was kept into the published Silmarillion, but Tolkien had never actually put into prose the expression of the idea which had nevertheless like he had decided it on it, right? So he decided that they had blocked up the way of escape um, and that therefore the dragon wasn't going to be lying in wait down there anymore as it was in the earlier stories, right? So he, he definitely decided that, but he didn't actually rewrite the story. So Christopher had to do it, right? He had to choose. Do I stay true to what he wrote or do I stay true to what he wanted to say, what, it, what he wanted to write? Um, so we can, we've already seen some of those choices. It's very clear. One thing that becomes very clear when we read these texts the Annals, and the Quinta, for instance. It's very clear that the published Silmarillion is eventually going to be putting all this stuff together, right? Um, We're going to have these elements from the Annals, which are going to get put in, right? Um, 
a lot of it comes straight from the Quenta. Remember long, the long passages of the Quenta that we were talking, that we were recognizing, right? Okay, yeah, here's like published Silmarillion for several paragraphs in a row, especially, for instance, right, the fall of Gondolin uh, stuff and all that. Um, you know, so we're getting long stretches where it's very clear this is, this is where it's going to get. And Christopher comments on this, right? He says, uh, you know, for several of these incidents, remember he says, this is the final version that my father ever wrote. Again, I'm thinking of the Fall of Gondolin, right? The Fall of Gondolin story, as it's told in the Quenta, the 1930 Quenta, is the last version Tolkien ever wrote of the Fall of Gondolin story. He started to write another one, but he didn't get there, right? So, um, So we know that we have already been reading some of the texts which Christopher is going to use to sort of do the kind of cut and paste job that he's going to have to do in order to make a finally edited, published Silmarillion, right? Therefore, any time in his commentary that he talks about the published Silmarillion as if it were an independent text, right, and talks about the, you know, something like the annals differing from it, I always, I, I get a little twitchy. Right, I'm like that. Wait, that's but that's not quite right. Right, it's it's or rather it's just kind of confusing. Um, instead, so it's it's not that the published Silmarillion, uh, it's not the annals differ from the published Silmarillion. It's that his ideas are still going to change some between where they are here and where they will be now. This is a, a sort of a minor point, and I know I've made a bigger deal of it than it needs to be. But I wanted just on the outside chance that somebody besides me was getting kind of confused and turned about at times in some of Christopher's paragraphs in his commentary here. Um, personally, I'm just going to chalk this up to Christopher Tolkien not really having his A-game when he wrote this particular set of commentaries, basically. Uh, you know, it happens to everybody. I don't think he's trying to pull one on us or anything, but um, anyway, just wanted to kind of draw attention to that. So if you found yourself confused by that, don't forget what the published Silmarillion is, when it comes in, and how we're, how Christopher Tolkien comes by it, right? Um, so, anyway. Okay. Enough. Enough complaining. Enough complaining. Um, one last thing about the general, sort of the uh, the annals in general before we uh, we come in and do a little bit more closer, ana- a little bit closer analysis of it, um, is... Notice that, to me, the biggest picture observation I would make about the Annals of Beleriand, the thing that I found so shocking about the Annals of Beleriand, is how very brief the whole story of Beleriand was. Right? I mean, my goodness! 250 years? 250 years! From from the rising of the sun to the beginning of the War of Wrath. Right? I mean, all that stuff, everything happens in 250 years. Um... Especially when we were considering the Valinorian scale before thirty thousand years, um, amazing. So even if you you remember, there's that one note which says that the War of Wrath lasted for fifty years. So even if you round it up to three hundred, three hundred years compared to the thirty thousand years. So the entire saga of the Noldor in Beleriand is one percent of the time from the uh, the first flowering of the trees in Valinor through uh, well not the darkening but through the rebellion of the Noldor that's amazing uh, and re- remember the 
what we were noticing in the annals of, of Valinor about the overall pattern, right? The sort of the acceleration of the pace, about how we get this, <clears throat> you know, twenty thousand year period, and then this thousand year period, and then this. Um, but anyway, I find it shocking, a little bit shocking, right? That I mean, on the one hand, again, it, it fits in that overall picture, like things were really great for so long and then they unravel super fast, right? You know, the whole darkening of Valinor and all the rebellion of the Noldor, that all happens in the space of, you know, like one century compared to the millennia that we had the other stuff. Um, but, um, but 150 years, 250 years, right, for the whole history of Beleriand. One of the things that I found hard about this was, I mean... They were an intense 250 years, right? I, I get that. I'm totally willing to buy that. <clears throat> but remember when we were talking about the Teleri, right? About how the Teleri, originally they lived for a thousand years on the shores of, of, of Beleriand, and then a thousand years at Tol Arisea, and then they went to Valinor, right? And remember in his revised version, they only lived for a hundred years, you know, years of the sun. They only lived for a hundred years. Uh, on the shores of Beleriand, and then a thousand years in Tolarisea. And we were talking about how like, how he had compressed the one but not the other, and th- th- there seemed to be a kind of logic there, right? Like, we wanted Elvenholm, right? We, you know, he, he seems to have wanted that expanded, that dilated time for the Teleri to live for a thousand years to allow their languages to separate and for Elvenholm to be kind of more special, right? Because it was the place they lived for a millennium. But the idea that all of these places, I mean, Gondolin, Gondolin, right? Gondolin lasts for less than 200 years. I, I mean, the, 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 they're barely in Gondolin for longer than the Teleri were lingering by the shores of Beleriand before they, before they got on the island, right? Um, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Josh Ramsey says, things that are good to have and days that are good to spend are soon told about and not much to listen to, while things that are uncomfortable, palpitating, and even gruesome may make a good tale and take a deal of telling anyway. Certainly, this is of course a quotation from chapter 3 of The Hobbit, um, certainly a principle which we see at play here. But that explains the difference in the narrative length, right? Um, The fact that the 30,000 years are covered in like you know, one chapter compared to the, you know, the the majority of the book focusing on the uh, the uncomfortable, palpitating, and gruesome bits of the first age. Um, yes, yes, we do see that in place again, as far as narrative scope is concerned. But that doesn't necessarily justify making the years so short as that, right? Um, you know, that the siege of the siege of of, uh, of of Angband barely even gets started before it's broken. Um, and that has a significant impact on the story. Now, of course, as Christopher points out, when Tolkien revises this, he's going to lengthen that, right? You know, we will see him come back and put several more centuries in um, so that it's we get 400 years instead of 200 years. Um, but, uh, but, but, but still, that his initial impulse was so short. Uh, so anyway, so I, here I'm talking about this, and I haven't read the passage I wanted to read. The shortness of time as my father at this period conceived it is very remarkable, and the more so in comparison with the later lavish millennia of the Second and Third Ages, right? Which is it's a great, you know, not just can we compare backwards to the to the val- to the Valian years, but forwards, right? Third Age is is four thousand years long, but the First Age gets only a couple hundred years, right? 
Um, not to mention eons allowed to the ages before the rising of the sun and moon. The history of men in Beleriand is comprised in 150 years before the beginning of the great battle, because, you know, men arriving about 100 years in. Nargothrond, Doriath, and Gondolin were all destroyed within 13 years, that is, of each other, and the entire history from the rising of the sun and moon and the coming of the exiled Noldoli to the destruction of Beleriand and the end of the Elder Days covers two and a half centuries, or three, according to the edition given in Note 69. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with Christopher that that, that that perspective, when you put it into perspective like that, is really pretty remarkable. Um, anyway... But let's 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 dig a little deeper here into the annals of Beleriand. Um, first, let's ask the question that we were asking um, uh, that we were um, so yeah uh, asking the question we were, that, that we were asking last time with the annals of, Val- of Valinor. That is, what is this text, right? Um, let's let's look at the style of this. Uh, you know, what are we reading here? Um, oh, no, Gwendolyn, I, it's not that the three great elven kingdoms lasted only 13 years. I believe he means they were all destroyed within 13 years of each other. So, like, in a 13-year span, all three of them go, right? Nargothrond, Gondolin, Doriath, all wrecked in, in, in 13 years. So he's talking about how, like, the the realms of Beleriand tumbled down like a house of cards, um, historically speaking, right? Um so, I mean, like, so in other words, look at how long Gondor holds out in comparison to Gondolin, right? For instance. Anyway, um, but let's let's uh, let's look at the style here. So again, my question: What are we reading here? Where are we? Right? What is this? Year one. Here, sun and moon, made by the gods after the death of the two trees of Valinor, appear. Thus, measured time came into the hither lands. Fingolfin leads the second house of the gnomes over the Straits of Grinding Ice into the Hitherlands. With him came the son of Finrod, Felagund, and part of the third or youngest house. <laughs> How's that for confusion if you're not getting the Finrod thing? Felagund, who is the son of Finrod, who will later be named Finarvin. They march from the north as the sun rises, and unfurl their banners, and they come to Mithrim, but there is feud between them and the sons of Feanor. Morgoth, at coming of light, retreats into his deepest dungeons, but smithies in secret, and sends forth black clouds. What do you notice? What are your observations about this, this, this annal, this entry? What do you notice? Any comments about the style? How does it compare with A, the Quenta, and B, the Annals of Eleanor? Yeah, Nancy, good. It's very clipped, right? Nancy is noticing that, that how he's skipping things, like that, you know, Morgoth at coming of light retreats into his deepest dungeons. Now, Christopher has mentioned at several points that it's, um, uh, uh, it's written quickly. Right, and it shows evidence of being written quickly. But I don't think it's just that, right? Um, it's not only the syntax and these the, those you know the, those kind of dropped words which change its tone. It's also what's be- I mean, even if we put those in, 
right? Morgoth, at the coming of the light, retreats into his deepest dungeons, but smithies in secret and sends forth black clouds. Right? Okay, let's put the particles back in there for him, right? Give him the benefit of the doubt, saying he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that to be the final form. He was just writing fast. Okay, fine. We'll put that back in. We still can see the same kind of thing. Um, it is, yeah, Gwendolyn, that's a great way to say it. Um, less poetic and embellished. Yes, much less poetic and embellished. Certainly much less than the Quenta. And I would say even less than the Annals of Valinor. It is uh, much plainer and factual, less mythic, Arthur says. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, Josh says it reads like an almanac. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I mean, remember uh, the, 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 that, that, that sort of clipped style. This is clearly just a summary. Um, yeah, um, both Roy and Yana are saying the same thing. It sounds like notes. Roy says it sounds more like notes for somebody to come back to and rewrite later. Um, Yana says it feels more like notes by Tolkien for Tolkien and not to be read without knowing more detailed versions. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, in a in a sense, yes. Um, it's just the facts, uh, Peter. Exactly, exactly. Much more functional, Mark. Totally agree. This is what we get. Remember the problem. What I was... Where I was locating the problem with the Annals of Valinor last time, the reason I, I, the whole reason I made a big deal about it, remember, the, the very first theory about the Annals of Valinor, which ultimately I rejected last time, was that this was just Tolkien working out his ideas. These are just notes, right? Working out his ideas <clears throat> about chronology in the same way that he's working out his ideas about geography with the maps, Right? And I rejected that about the Annals of Valinor because it was too pretty, right? It, it, it was much too poetic. It was, it, 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 you know, much less so than the Quenta, still highly compressed. Um, you know, as I was arguing last time, certainly not a substitution for the Quenta, not just a new version of the Quenta, um, wholly inadequate as a substitute for the Quenta, but as a parallel, interesting, right? Um, and But something which seemed designed to be presented. But when I say presented, I don't just mean read by others. I mean, we have read something like this, right? Exactly, Nancy, and James, and Josh. This sounds like the Tale of Years. This sounds like Appendix B of The Lord of the Rings. That's just the tone of Appendix B in The Lord of the Rings, right? That's what, in a sense, we were expecting to find in the Annals of Valinor. And I was arguing we don't get that tone there, or at least that tone is... He varies from that tone all over the place in the Annals of Valinor. We get that tone, I think, much more specifically, um, much more clearly, here in the Annals of Beleriand. Um, And you can see, it's really shortened, right? I mean, look how far he goes, how, how good he is about not getting carried away Right, he is not at all losing his focus. I mean, uh, now wait. Well, actually, hang on one second before I leave this passage. One last one thing to notice: it's not wholly unpoetic. Right, there are still little touches. I mean, if you're going to write a tale of years entry, the reference to the unfurling of the banners doesn't really have to be there. Right, that's a a touch of visual imagery to help us picture this momentous scene, right? So, you know, it's not 
100% poetic detail free, but it certainly um, does not have near enough poetic details to make me question its genre, like uh, the Annals of Valinor did. Um, and good, yeah, Nancy says, sends forth black clouds is, uh, uh, is, is also sort of evocative in a similar way. Um, yeah, again, it's telling important details, but, um, uh, but it, uh, but it's not, um, it's not indulging itself poetically, right? There are touches, but it's not indulgent in the way that the Annals of Valinor did seem to really indulge that. Uh, look at this. Here Morgoth loosed a host of dragons over the mountains from the north, and Gondolin's Vale was taken, and the city besieged. The orcs sacked Gondolin and destroyed the king and most of his people, but Akthelion of the Fountain slew their Gothmog lord of Balrogs ere he fell. Tuor slew Meglin. Tuor, Idril, and Eärendil escaped by a secret way devised by Idril and came to Christhorn Eagle's Cleft, a high pass beneath Fingolfin's cairn in the north. Glorfindel was there slain in an ambush, but Thorndor saved the remnant of Gondolin, and they escaped at last into the Vale of Sirion. The ruin of the elves was now well-nigh complete, and no refuge or strong place or realm remained to them. That's really short, right? That's really short. Um, <clears throat> think how much more compressed this is than the sketch, right? I mean, you see all of these... Like, and you count the number of places where there's the opportunity for expansion, right? Um, the the host of dragons coming over the mountains from the north, right? Oh, we could just get a little bit there. Just a little touch, right? The besieging of the city, the sacking of Gondolin. Can we get a brief aside, right? Uh, you know, and grievous was the fall of that, something like that, right? Nope, nope. No. destroyed the king. We don't even mention him, right? We don't even say, and thus fell Turgon, right? No, 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 we don't even mention his name, right? Destroyed the king and most of his people. Thank you very much, right? We reference Ecthelion and and uh, Gorfindel both, but of course both of them have, um, have a factual premise, right? That is to say, it's important to know that uh, you know, the, 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 the sacrifice of Gorfindel is a significant thing in itself. Uh, Ecthelion's death, because he threw, he slew Gothmog, and Gothmog has come into the story several times. Um, so, uh, you know, that's... Uh, but again, think of all the... all the opportunities he is passing over here, right? Compared to the Annals of Valinor, this is a disciplined summary, right? Very, very sketchy. Now, um... Tom, you're right. Tom Hillman points out that in some of the phrasing, we can still see something like poetic touches. Um, Slew there ere he fell are two examples that Tom points to, and I agree, Tom. But there I would say that's a question of of sort of diction and register. That is, he's still going to use words like slew and ere, right? He's still going to speak in that mode. Um... But that doesn't mean... That's not even necessarily poetic as much as he's still speaking within a certain register, right? But the way he's speaking within that register is very clipped and very, at least comparatively, um, uh, poetry-free, right? Um, And Josh, I agree, that last sentence is a bit of an embellishment, not totally necessary, though even 
as just a statement of summary, just to point out the ruin of the elves was now well nigh complete, right? Um, just to, what a sum up where we are here, right? I mean, it's it's still fairly more uh, more 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 direct, um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah, good. James, you're doing some really interesting thinking about what does this mean about writing the Annals of Beleriand first and coming to the Annals of Valinor. You're thinking exactly the same directions that I'm thinking here. Um, yeah, yeah. Gwendolyn says it's as though he's short on time. He's holding himself back. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, he is. That seems to be... the. That is... He seems to ha- to be making the choice to write in this genre, right? Like the tale of years genre. Short summary of events attached to dates, right? Not a poetic description of those things, not a retelling of those stories. Just a just a a, a note, right? A summary of the major events. Um, in fairly dispassionate, though still Sort of archaic language, right? But 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 you know within that register, which uh, I think we would call archaic. Uh, I don't think Tolkien would like that very much. But anyway, you know what I mean. Um, but again, still very clearly in that what I would call the tale of year of years genre of thing. Um, here's another one. One eighty nine. Blodren Ben's son betrays their hiding place, and Turin is taken alive. Beleg, healed of his wounds, follows in pursuit. He comes upon Flinding, son of Fuilin, who escaped from Morgoth's mines. Together they rescue Turin from the orcs. Turin slays Beleg by misadventure. Turin slays Beleg by misadventure. Are you kidding me? Right? I, 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 wow. I mean, can, that Tolkien did that. I'm so impressed. Like, I would not have thought that Tolkien was possible. But that Tolkien was capable, that it was conceivable that he could actually execute that sentence, that he could that he could state, he could retell the story of Turin killing Beleg in one five-word sentence, right? I mean, yeah, Michael, yeah, understatement of the year. Totally agree, totally agree. But I mean, we see how striking this is, how striking the brevity is. Um, that is, he is. He started off in this genre, and he is showing commitment to it. Because remember, we've seen this before, right? We've seen things grow and get out of hand as they go along. The Quinta itself seemed to do that, right? Get bigger and bigger and bigger as as it as it went along, and it sort of kind of indulged it more. Um, you know that same pattern that I've talked about many times before, where you start off writing writing notes and you end up writing a draft, right? He's he's he's. Um, this is what we kind of expect to see. It's what we don't see in the Annals of Beleriand. That's why I don't think, um, in looking at the whole thing, why I, I find myself un, uh, unconvinced uh, that the Annals of Beleriand were written as notes to himself. Because I think if he were writing them as notes to himself, I don't think he could have done it. I don't think he could have uh, c- constrained himself in this way. He'd have, he'd have expanded. Um... And, uh, yeah, Gwendolyn, exactly. This is like half the children of Hurin in half a paragraph. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I think that what we what we see here, 
reflects a clear decision and a consistently maintained decision by Tolkien to do this. In other words, the Annals of Beleriand, it would seem to me, are a thing, not a an accidental product, not a not a not a jotting down. He was setting out to accomplish this, because I mean that had to have hurt. I mean that was painful. Uh, I, it had to have been painful for him to write that sentence. Turin slays Beleg by misadventure. I ask you, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, okay, so. That's kind of amazing and 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 pretty and pretty impressive. But okay, so he's seems to be doing it deliberately. My reading seems to be doing it deliberately. But what he's doing is the tale of years genre. Okay, all right, cool. Now we'll come back to putting that together into the big picture uh, of the rest of his writings here uh, in a little bit. But what's what's I want? I, I don't want to miss some of the cool stuff because we're talking about the really. I don't want to. I don't want to miss all the trees for talking about the forest, right? So let's 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 stop, let's linger for a second and look at some of the some of the trees. That is to say, I want to look at some of the things that we can get from it, some of the significance of because there are there are there is some new stuff, right? That's pretty cool. Um, one thing we can see him doing, so even while he's doing this, he's not merely just extracting from the stories that he's done. There is some new stuff. We don't see him changing the the nature of the story. He stays in Tale of Years mode all the way through, but he does refine the story. Right? He's not capable of just writing the same thing without adding anything new or thinking it through more. Right? Um, so, for instance, this is one small example, but again, we can see him uh, filling in the corners. Right? Uh, 20. Feast and games of reuniting were held in Nantathrin, the land of willows, near the delta of Syrian, between the elves of Valinor returning and the dark elves. But those of the western havens, Brithumbar and Eldorest, and the scattered wood elves of the west and ambassadors of Thingol. A time of peace followed. See how his picture of... Well, to... To say this in one way... Uh, the politics of Beleriand is developing here, right? Um, we get the Western Havens as players. Remember, we saw them on the map, but they weren't in the Quenta at all. So they're kind of uh, uh, they're 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 kind of coming in. Um, uh, we get the you know the ambassadors from Thingol, and the, so you know that 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 picture that we get in um, in the published Silmarillion about. Meanwhile, what was happening in Beleriand while people in Valinor were up to the wacky hijinks that they were up to over there? Remember, you know, that bit about the, you know, the making of weapons and the invasion of the orcs and the death of Denethor and all that stuff, you know, the first Denethor, the elvish one, um, the non-crazy one. Um, but uh, anyway, so so the, the um, that stuff, still still working that out, right? But we can see him move a step closer to that. We can see him beginning to thinking about how the whole larger Beleriand polity kind of works here. Yeah, Nancy wonders what games uh, the elves liked to play. Uh, a great question, Nancy. Possibly checkers? I doubt it. Um, uh, I mean, I assume Feast and Games of Reuniting kind of sounds like you know, I mean, I can't help but think of, of 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 Greek games. You know, I mean, this makes me think of uh, of you know, like uh, a, 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 the funeral games at at 
Patroclus's funeral um, in uh, uh, what was that? Wasn't that book twenty? Was it twenty three or twenty one of the Tom? Which one is it? I'm, Tom, I'm losing my Iliad. It's been too many years since I've read the Iliad. Obviously twenty three. Okay, I thought it was twenty three. Um, yeah, the uh, um, anyway. Okay, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, so, uh, yeah. Clearly, some kind of athletic competitions. What athletic competitions? One wonders, right? Were they wrestling? Were they racing? Foot races? Um, uh, uh, feats of strength? Uh, uh, you know, archery? Who knows? I don't know. Um, uh, but. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's, yeah, you're right, Gwendolyn. They do seem to have had f- physical sports in Valinor. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hillman says, uh, uh, running up stonework, collapsing in midair, troll steering. Yeah, yeah, Tom. I'm sure that's just what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Roy suggests duck duck goose. <laughs> what a wonderful image, Roy. Um, in fact, that really uh, that really needs to be a one pane comic, right? Okay, okay, artists, we need this. We need a picture of uh, Fingolfin cured in the shipwright, uh, one armed Mithros, right, uh, and uh, like uh, Beleg uh, and Finrod Felagund sitting around in a circle. Right, while like Maglor walks around, you know, tapping their heads. That totally, that totally needs to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> okay. all right, all right. All right. The point is, right? We, okay, so we can see how he is filling in some of these ideas. This is a, this is a, this is a <laughs> Silmaril keep away. Yeah, hot potato except with gems. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that, Arthur. Anyway, okay, 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 okay. Um. One thing that we can see him doing is we can see evidence of him filling out some of his ideas, even though he keeps the entries themselves still terse. Some of the larger ideas which we have seen working out uh, come in, and 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 we can see kind of a new emphasis um, being being given to them. Um, it's one of the things that I really love about the Annals of Beleriand is seeing the stories worked out in parallel with each other, right? Rather than separately, as we get them in the published Silmarillion. Um, we get that one really fun reference in the published Silmarillion to that moment in Tuor's story, right? When uh, uh, Tuor and Veronwe are sort of sitting there and they're waiting to cross over to, you know, the, 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 the Pass of Syrian, and they see this, like, really grumpy-looking dude carrying a black sword traveling north, and they just pass him by, and they're like, huh, yeah. Wonder what he's up to, right? You know, that one moment when Turin and Tuor's paths cross, though they never meet. Um, that's I, I always loved that moment in the published Silmarillion. In the Annals, we get that that same kind of sense all the time, right? We, we seeing them lined up against each other is really really fun. Um, so one of the things that I really love about the Annals, um, and which seems to be, I mean, I'm tempted even to call it what appears to be one of the primary functions of the annals of Beleriand is to um, to put those things side by side and show the bigger pattern, right? Um, a few examples. 
Look at how these things come together. Glomond with a host of orcs comes over Arid Loman and defeats the gnomes between Narog and Tyglin. Handir is slain. Flinding dies, refusing succor of Turin. Turin hastens back to Nargathron, but it is sacked ere his coming. He is deceived and spellbound by Glomond. Fyndulas and the women of Nargathron are taken as thralls, but Turin, deceived by Glomond, goes to Hithlam to seek Morwen. News comes to Doriath that Nargathron is taken, and Mormakil is Turin. Tuor was led out of Hithlam by a secret way under Olmo's guidance, and journeyed along the coast past the ruined havens of Brithambar and Eldorest, and reached Syrian's mouth. See what we get here? Even just think about this geographically, right? In the same year, Glomund, Glaurung, the dragon, right, is coming south over the mountains and down into this region and conquering this whole region. Meanwhile, Olmo is sneaking to war all the way around. Remember how like he ends up down at Nantathrin, down by the down by the, the mouths of Syrian? And it's like, why is he that's he starts in Hithlam, right? So Hithlam is here, and Gondolin is here, right? Gondolin is here, Hithlam is here. So to go from here to here, he goes all the way down and then up, right? I mean, it's like, why does he go that route? We can see why he goes that route. He's scur- so we've got the whole desolation of Gloman going on in here, and at the same time, so he's. Olmo here is uh, here is uh, uh, you know Olmo secretly as Morgoth moves forward and moves one of his major pieces on the board and takes out Nargothrond. You have Olmo sneaking to or literally geographically around Glomond at that time. That's kind of fun, right? That's really cool. Um, oh, uh, let's see. Um, Oh, yeah, Flinding dies, refusing succor of Turin. Roy, that means that... Uh, so, Turin was attempting to give succor to him, that is to help him, right? And Flinding refuses. So, Flinding dies in the act of refusing help from Turin, right? Uh, Turin offers to help him, and, and Flinding tells him where he can stick his help. And dies. That's that's uh, that's my understanding of that sentence. Because um, he's bitter about the whole girlfriend-stealing thing. Um... Anyway, doesn't putting these things side by side really kind of help us to see the urgency here, right? Almost urgency, um, especially now. Remember what's going to happen, right? One thing still missing from the Nargathron story that's going to get into the published Silmarillion and is going to play an even more prominent role in the 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 Narnihin Hurin, the version that's in un- the long prose version in Unfinished Tales, which is going to get dressed up in the uh, in the the. Uh, the Children of Hurin, the 2000, what was it, 2005 uh, Ch- uh, Children of Hurin book. So in the Unfinished Tales version, Olmo's intervention in Nargothrond, right? Remember when Olmo's messengers come to Nargothrond and say, hey y'all, throw the bridge down. Bad idea, right? And Turin's like, whatever. I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ignore that. That element, Olmo's warning to Nargothrond isn't there. We don't see it yet. Right, but see how sort of the the path is laid for that. Right, we we see Olmo acting. You know, Olmo is moving towards his end game here, um, and so seeing him, um, uh, seeing him, uh, 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 kind of conscious of the, the 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 overall moves on the board here. I think is again, it's it's sort of a fun uh, um, side effect of laying things out in this way. 
Um, another one. Here, Tuar meets Bronweg at Syrian's mouth. Olmo himself appears to him in Nantathrin, and Tuor and Bronweg, guided by Olmo, find Gondolin. They are received after questioning, and Tuor speaks the embassy of Olmo. Turgon does not now hearken to it, partly because of the urging of Meglin, but Tuor, for his kindred's sake, is held in great honor. Okay, so Tuor gets to Gondolin, and Turgon rejects Olmo's message. Morwen goes to Nargothrond, whither Glomond has returned, and lies on the treasure of Felagant. That is, Glomond, not Morwen, lies on the treasure of Felagant. She seeks for tidings of Turin. Neonor, against her bidding, rides in disguise with her escort of elves of the folk of Thingol. Glomond lays a spell on the company and disperses it. Morwen vanishes in the woods, and a great darkness of mind comes on Neonor. Turin found Neonor hunted by the orcs. He names her Ninio, the Tearful, since she knew not her name, and himself Turinbar. See the really cool parallels that get brought out here? The kind of the, the points of contact between these stories, which you might not have really thought about quite so much um, without this, or certainly not nearly kind of as, as, as forceful as this, right? So... Um, uh, Turgon rejects Olmo's, you know, he sort of with, uh, uh, he willfully rejects Olmo's word and does his own thing. Morwen, meanwhile, is willfully insisting on her will and rejecting Thingol's advice, right? Um, and Niniel or Neonor, rather, is at the same time rejecting her mother's command and willfully following along instead when she wasn't supposed to. And then, meanwhile, here's Turin renaming himself Master of Doom, right? 196 was an interesting year, right? But but again, the, the, these connections among these stories are cool. And really, and, and again, they're, they're, they are suggested more forcefully than they would have than they than they are when they're just when they're separated from each other by so much when we're telling each story individually. One ninety nine, Glomond seeks out the dwellings of Turin. Turin slays him with Gorthulfin with Gorthulfin his sword, but falls a swoon beside him. Neonor finds him, but Glomond ere death releases her from the spell and declares her kindred. Neonor casts herself away over the waterfall in that place. Brandir reveals the truth to Turin and is slain by him. Turin bids Gorthulfin slay him, and he dies. So ended the worst of Morgoth's evil, but Hurin was released from Angband, bowed with age, and sought for Morwen. Tuor weds Idril Celebrindal, daughter of Turgon of Gondolin, and earns the secret hate of Meglen. Same year, right? Uh, the incest of Turin and Neonor is revealed, and Turin and Neonor discovering that they married illicitly, and that they're really brother and sister, kill themselves. Meanwhile, Turin and Idril are getting married, right? Isn't that great? <laughs> Josh Ramsey calls that last paragraph mood whiplash, right? Yeah, yeah, kinda, right? But again, fascinating, isn't it? Right? I mean, they got things that I would I didn't know, right? I mean, I wouldn't have known without the annals that Tour married Idril at the same time that not at like the same moment necessarily, um, but um, at the, you know so the, the 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 coinciding of those events, you know, I didn't know that, right? Um, uh, 
so fascinating, right? You know, the way in which sorrow and joy is are coming together, both the parallels, the you know, sort of uncomfortable parallels between them. Um, but the, you know, the, I mean, honestly, I take this more than anything else as ad, amidst sorrow, there is joy, right? And through the suffering that is happening, of course, Tuor's story here in Gondolin, we've already seen the rejection of Olmo's council. We know this is not going to end well. Gondolin is doomed to fall, and quite soon. And yet, um, the marriage of Idril and Tuor is not only a happy thing, but a good thing, not only a short-term good thing, but a very long-term good thing, right? Much good is going to come from it through Eärendil and his offspring and his line. So, um, uh, we uh, we can see good coming in the midst of evil, uh, you know, anyway, but the, those are all ideas which we can see in Tolkien in other places, but we don't get them so forcefully brought home to us, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom says, you can have a scene like the baptism scene at the end of The Godfather, cutting back and forth between Tuor and Turin. Um, uh, yeah, 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 Tom, exactly. I was, I was, I mean, I was, I, I can't help but think of, like, <clears throat> cutting back and forth between a parallel scene, right, of, uh, like, Neonor looking down at the unconscious Turin's face, right? Um, you know, so her, like, shocked and haggard but loving face looking down at Turin's face, which is, like, in repose but triumphant, and she thinks he's, you know, oh, happy to be dead, right? At the And then cutting to, like, Tuor and Idril, uh, you know, looking at each other while they're getting married, right? You know, that's... That's good. That'd be awesome, right? That'd be great. Um, totally have to... Uh, yeah, Josh says, as Turin casts himself on his sword, Tuor and Idril kiss. Uh, yeah, ah, absolutely. Oh, man, like, it's great. Great, great, uh, great potential. I think it would freak people out. But anyway, we see. We see this. We see this happening. Okay, one more. I, I will indulge myself in one more uh, cool piece of chronological overlapping. Here was born Eärendil the Bright, the star of the two kindreds, unto Tuor and Idril in Gondolin. Even in the annals of Beleriand, he can't keep the odor, you know, the, the brief aroma of the Messiah off of Eärendil, right? Even the one sentence Eärendil's birth gets here uh, still sounds messianic, right? The Bright, the star of the two kindreds. We, we, even in the annals, we get that. Okay, here was born Eärendil the Bright, the star of the two kindreds, unto Tuor and Idril in Gondolin. Here was born also Elwing the White, fairest of women save Luthien, unto Dior and Osirian. Hurin gathers men unto him. They find the treasure of Nargathrond and slay Meme the dwarf, who had taken it to himself. The treasure is cursed. The treasure is brought to Thingol, but Hurin departs from Doriath with bitter words, but of his fate and of Morwen's after no certain tidings are known. Okay, so we see what happens here. Now, especially if we think back to the Book of Lost Tales. From a Book of Lost Tales perspective, this would be huge. Eärendil and Elwing, both of them born in the same year that Hurin brings the treasure to Nargothrond and the curse of Meme is laid upon the treasure, which not only leads to the downfall of Doriath, but clings to the Nauglifring and thus the Silmaril 
and brings about the destruction of Elwing and the 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 uh, settlement at uh, the mouths of Sirion and um, you know I so I remember what a big deal the Curse of Meme was before right um, so it's he's pulled back off that a little bit but it's still not gone right the Curse of Meme is still really significant and going to have much significance uh, for. Elwing, Arundel, and their folk, but um, but anyway, another, just another kind of cool thing that 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 treasure thing is happening uh, right then at that moment. All right, okay. Uh, so again, you see the the blessing and the cursing, right? It's all it's all, it's all happening at once. We we get that sort sort of balance or correspondence again. All right, okay, okay, okay. So we see what what you know some of the other things that this is accomplishing. Now, a few new elements that I want to point. I want to spend. Uh, I want to look a little bit more closely at a few moments of of significant development of the story. Um, Hurin comes to Gondolin. Right, a tour of Gondolin was one of the only things that Hurin, the uber hero of humanity, uh, uh, was missing. Right now. He gets his junket in Gondolin. 155. Turgon was not at that battle, nor Haleth, or any but few of his folk. It is said that Hurin was at Foster with Haleth, that is, in the Dagor Bregalach, in the, the Battle of, an, of, of Sudden Flame. Uh, and that Haleth and Hurin, hunting in Syrian's Vale, of course, we remember that Haleth is not yet female as well. That's important. Okay, uh, and that Haleth and Hurin, hunting in Syrian's Vale, came upon some of Turgon's folk and were brought into the secret Vale of Gondolin, whereof those outside none yet knew, save Thorndor, King of Eagles. For Turgon had messages and dreams sent by the god Omo, Lord of Waters, up Syrian, warning him that uh, the help of men was necessary for him. Remember, this has been one of one of uh, 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 one of Omo's hobby horses, right? You must have the help of men, or you won't win. But Haleth and Hurin swore oaths of secrecy and never revealed Gondolin, but Haleth learned something of the counsels of Turgon and told them after to Hurin. Great liking had Turgon for the boy Hurin, and would have kept him in Gondolin, but the grievous tidings of the great battle came, and they departed. Okay. Darn it, it's going to sound like I'm complaining about Christopher or teasing Christopher again. Well, I can't help it. As I've begun, so shall I go on. Um, in his commentary, Christopher Tolkien makes a huge deal about this. right? He's all like, finally, the element of Hurin coming to Gondolin has entered into the story. And like, yeah, it's true. We had not gotten it yet. I have to admit that I have a really hard time getting excited about this passage. Um, if anything, it seems really odd. I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what this is meant to accomplish exactly. How is the story... Like, I ask myself, how is the story altered by this? What do we gain? What does the story gain? What's the point of this? Um, I don't know. I mean, we can see a function later on, right? Um, the Hurin and Gondolin, I mean, it's still a little bit unnecessary. But um, it... Um, it at least enables... I mean, that scene when Hurin, released from Angband, is crying out, Oh, Turgon, Turgon, remember the Fens of Serek? Right? That's a powerful scene. Right? That's nice. Um, him crying out in frustration and Turgon hardening his heart and then, too late, softening it again. Right? Um, there's 
there's tragedy there. There's real pathos there. So even if just for that moment, it was totally worth it to bring Hur and her and Hurin into Gondolin. Um, and also, it makes <clears throat> it makes Hurin's triumph over Morgoth cooler, right? That like he knows, you know, uh, Morgoth suspects that Hurin was in Gondolin, and so particularly wants to bring not just to recruit him, right? Remember, Hurin is like uber awesome super mega warrior champion in in the versions that we've been reading here right you know he's still just like the apex of humanity um but uh, but so so remember morgoth captured him because he wanted to recruit him like you are the best and greatest warrior of all time and so I, i'd really love to have you working on my side was morgoth's approach when morgoth is taking him because he knows about gondolin and is therefore trying to get him to reveal the location of gondolin and everything that he knows about it and hurin refuses that's cool right that's even cooler actually um but what do we get here i don't know i mean this just seems to me weird i don't i have to admit i don't get it so far from like Christopher Tolkien looks at this and he's all like, wow, this is great! We finally get Gondolin! And I'm like, huh? Like, what What are we doing? And why are we doing it? Okay, Horton's fostering with Haleth. Okay, like, I'm cool with that. So, they're hunting and they come upon some of Turin's folk who are just, like, randomly wandering around in contradiction of what is said later on that sentence, right? None, none outside yet knew save Thorndor, King of Eagles, and apparently the people of Gondolin who go wandering around hunting randomly, right? So, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the law that prevents anybody from leaving, uh, not present, or certainly not very strictly upheld, right, here, so, but anyway, okay, whatever, they happen across Gondolin folks, and they're taken in, okay? Um, even though we're going on to explain about how you've got... Okay, but anyway, so, right, so we're taking men in because almost as we should, so that's fine. So they swear oaths of secrecy, um, but Haleth learns of his counsel and then reveals it. But he only reveals it to Turin, so that's okay. I guess. Alright. Okay. And Turgon really liked Hurin. Okay. So this sets up there being great joy when Hurin and Turgon meet again on the battlefield in the Near Nith Arnodiad, or that which will someday be called the Near Nith Arnodiad, right? Okay, I mean, that's kind of cool, but that's a comparatively small, you know, payoff compared to, like, oh, Turgon, Turgon, remember the Fens of Sarek? That's a good payoff, right? Um, this is um, not a great... Uh, I think that the, you know, the... And they were delighted to see each other again uh, at the battlefield. That doesn't seem like a great payoff. So, on the one hand, yes, we get this incident now for the first time. But on the other hand, I don't, I don't, I don't see where it's tending to. I don't, um, I don't know where we're going, where he's going with this. It doesn't seem like, I mean... I hesitate to say this because this is me getting inside Tolkien's head. It doesn't look like he knows where this is going yet. Maybe he does, and he's not conveying it. I don't know, but uh, um, but I don't I don't know. Yeah, Gwendolyn, I think Christopher was excited to see the story here for the first time. Um, I just uh, <laughs> guess I just didn't share his enthusiasm. Uh, I, I, you know, he 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 got me all excited, and I was disappointed. Um, yeah, Yana, I, I think that that is a good point. You know, Yana says it's kind of like a like a Strider Trotter moment. You know, when Tolkien wrote something, he didn't quite understand the full meaning of it first yet. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I, quite, quite possibly. I mean, it's not nearly as momentous as you know Strider, but, but, but yeah. I mean, I think something in that in in that direction quite likely. Um, in my mind, a much bigger deal, and of which, of which, Christopher Tolkien made a much smaller deal in his commentary, was the story of the founding of Nargothrond and Gondolin, finally. Right? You know, from the uh, we're running away from the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, hey, look, here's an unoccupied and highly secret valley, let's hide there. Right? From that to oh no, they probably did they lived there for a while before the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, to now finally hey, this was almost planned all along. Right? That's cool. That's an interesting development. Notice how Ulmo's role is still increasing here. Right? Morgoth's might begins to move once more. Earthquakes in the north. Orc raids begun. Begin. Turgon, son of Fingolfin, is great in friendship with with Felagund, son of Finrod. Um, oh, by the way, I forget who mentioned this, and it was like an hour ago, so I'm never going to remember. One of you mentioned, and I, I, I skipped over it, but it just came back to me, that the 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 annals of Beleriand are in the present tense. That's a, another big thing I think that contributes to that tone of that like a tale of years tone. Right. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, just remembering that good point that I forgot to credit. If you said that earlier, feel free to take credit for that, and I will I will mention you. Um, Yana did. Okay, great, great. Thank you. Uh, okay, uh, Turgon, son of Fingolfin, is great in friendship with Felagund, son of Finrod, but Oradreth, Angrod, and Egnor, sons of Finrod, are friends of the sons of Feanor, especially Caligorm and Curufin. Right, yeah, we remember that bit. Turgon and Felagund are troubled by dreams and forebodings. Felagund finds the caves of Narog and established his armories there. Turgon alone discovers the hidden vale of Gondolin. Being still troubled in heart, he gathers folk about him and departs from Hithlum, the land of mist about Mithrim, where his brother Fingon remains. So, we still don't have Vinyamar, right? Vinyamar's still not on the, on, the, on the radar screen yet. He's still moving direct from Hithlum, where he was hanging out with Fingon and Fingolfin, and uh, and 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 go straight to Gondolin from there, but this concept of the dreams and forebodings that Olmo sends, um, uh, and how he how he, it is supernaturally revealed to him um, that he should think about this and gets to Gondolin. This is um. Uh, this is, I think, a really interesting development. Um, and, and again, fun to see in this context of where we can see the larger shape of the story uh, coming into place. Then one of my favorite things, which is something that's not going to be... It, it, this is not... And this is the first time... Unlike the first two, this is not a moment from the... you know Which is going to make it into the published Silmarillion, which appears for the first time in, in the annals. Rather, here's a bit which we're not going to get in the published Silmarillion. Fionway's host draws nigh to the hitherlands, and his trumpets from the sea ring in the western woods. Here was fought the Battle of Elderest, where Ingwil, son of Ingwe, made a landing. Okay, so we actually get, like, uh, you know, elvish D-Day, right? When, uh, when, when the, 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 the armies of Valinor establish a beachhead at Elderest, right, for their uh, invasion of, uh, of, well, not of Normandy, but of, uh, of, 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 of Beleriand. Great war comes into Beleriand, and Fionwë summons all elves. And now, of course, needless to, this is prior to D-Day, and I know that, right? I, I'm just 
That was my comparison. I'm not saying Tolkien is making a reference. Want there to be no confusion about that. Um, I, I'm not saying this is a prophecy of of, of D Day, right? That he's foretelling the uh, the uh, the the landing in Normandy. Just 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 making that explicit. Okay, sorry. Okay, great war comes into Beleriand, and Fionnwë summons all elves and dwarves and men and beasts and birds to his standards, who do not elect to fight for Morgoth. But the power and dread of Morgoth was very great, and many did not obey. Exactly, Arthur. Exactly what I was thinking. Arthur Harrow says it reminds me of the Battle of Daggerlad, where all things were divided, save only the elves. Yeah, every all the peoples of Middle-earth participated in the Battle of Daggerlad. Right, it was like another one of those. Like they did a, they did a, they, like the, the 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 they called they they did an exhaustive roll call. Right, everybody summoned to participate. Some fought on either side, but only ex- except for the elves. The elves <clears throat> were one hundred percent against Sauron in the Battle of Daggerlad. <clears throat> Same thing happens here, but everybody, um, everybody is 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 in, involved. Even the beasts and birds. There's this summoning, this sense of the summoning to judgment, almost right. Every everybody is called, right? He summons everything, everything: elves, dwarves, men, beasts, dwarves, dwarves. Did I say dwarves? That's interesting. That's really significant. This is one of the first times we've seen dwarves kind of lumped in with elves and men, right? Um, I mean, they've been kind of sketchy at best. By the way. Ah, footnote. Remember when we were talking about dwarves in the Quenta, and I was pointing out that the Quenta is written at the same time that Tolkien was writing The Hobbit, and I was arguing that the depiction of dwarves, the sketchy dwarves that we get in the Quenta, is Thorin and Company. Um, And that if if you go back and read The Hobbit, and you think of those Quenta dwarves, the ones who are playing both sides and uh, you know profiteering off the arms race between Morgoth and the uh, and the elves and holding back from the battle of unnumbered tears to see who wins and everything. Um, uh, anyway, uh, if you think of the, if you keep those dwarves in mind as you read the Hobbit, it really changes how you read the Hobbit, especially the end of the Hobbit. Um, and I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm, as, I, as it happens, this past week, or like a week and a half ago, I started my annual rereading of The Hobbit, and it's been really cool. It, 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 I'm more confident than ever that it does work. Um, Thorne and company totally are like that. Um, they, they rise, right? But I think it totally, it totally works. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so the fact that dwarves are included here, that's pretty cool. Uh, beasts and birds also, right? Um, and yeah, I, Arthur, I too was thinking <clears throat> about um, I too was thinking about the last battle in C.S. Lewis and all of Narnia coming to <clears throat> come face to face with Aslan before the stable door. Totally what I was thinking of. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, Mark Ingram was thinking of, uh, of Narnia with the beasts and birds specifically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, this is different. And, uh, Brian, yes, this is not only a bit that isn't mentioned in the published Silmarillion. <clears throat> the published Silmarillion says something different from this. It is contradicted in the, in the published Silmarillion. As Brian recalls, um, 
it's said in the published Silmarillion that none of the Noldor who was exiled to Middle-earth fought in the War of Wrath, right? They're all on the sidelines. Now, most of them, most of them are not fighting in the War of Wrath for the really quite good reason that they're already dead, right? Uh, but those who survive didn't take part in the War of Wrath, we're told. And there's none of this sense of, that, like, they were summoned and they didn't show up, right? I mean, if, the, if according to this version they hadn't shown up, they'd presumably have been in trouble, right? Um, because this is, I mean, it's why, I've got, of course, it's not exactly parallel to the parable of the sheep and the goats, taking a bit of a liberty there. My point is the separation of the, you know, the, the uh, it's more like uh, the separating of the wheat from the tares rather than the sheep and the goats, frankly. But um, anyway, that, that kind of thing. Um, but that element in the War of Wrath is really interesting. Right. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Arthur. That's the that's the reference. Uh, the sheep and the goats. Don't don't worry about the sheep and the goats. It's basically like uh, um, uh, uh, in one of Jesus's para, uh, parables near the end, where he's talking about basically like people who have who have who have done right and people who have not done right. Um, and he compares the first to sheep and the latter to goats. Uh, hard on the goats, I know, but there it is. Um, <clears throat> anyway. Um, and the separation of the wheat and the tares, Arthur, is another uh, parable of Jesus's, um, which is about a, a, a parable about sowing a wheat field and there being weeds in it and them being separated out at the end of time. You know, so when uh, uh, when when the end of time comes, the tares are bundled up and thrown in the fire and the wheat is gathered into the barn at the harvest, which is the end of the world. Um, that will happen. So this kind of separate... In other words... This moment from Fionnwe really seems to... I mean, this this obviously, this sounds to me kind of apocalyptic, right? It gives the, the War of Wrath, a, 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 in my mind, a deeply apocalyptic significance. Um, literally apocalyptic, actually. Um, does anybody, besides Tom, know what the word apocalypse literally means? Um the word apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. Um, and apocalyptic, as an adjective, doesn't mean end of the world. It only comes to mean that indirectly later on. Um, but, yeah, revelation, right? Literally uncovering. Um, uh, the, when things are uncovered. Um, when the, the truth of things is revealed um, and the, you know, the curtain is drawn back and you see the thing uh, you know, as it is. That's what Fionnwe is doing, Right? Let's let's lay this out. Okay, for once and for all, who's on Morgoth's side and who's on the side of the Valar? Right? We're drawing a line in the sand. Bring it, people. Right? Put it on the line right now. Um, where do you stand? That's what I mean when I say this is an apocalyptic moment. Right? Everything is laid bare, and the and then the you know the good then proceeds to go in and um, and kick the butt of the. Uh, of the of of the evil eventually it takes fifty years right but 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 it works um, yeah yeah um, exactly Mark you're absolutely right the Noldor are cowering in their huts as far south as possible um, yeah yeah that's exactly what they're doing um, in the published Silmarillion um, not here right um, so the fact that the War of Wrath has now one significant difference of course. The War of Wrath is pretty much the end, or near the end, anyway. Not the total end, because we still get the, you know, the 
return to Toerasea, and then we get the, the Dominion of Men coming up, and, you know, so it's it's not like, and we still have to send, you know, get Alfwina over and send him back, so, you know, human history is going to go on, it's not the end of time, it's not the end of the world yet. Um, but it is the turning point of history, right? The, the This time of the elves in Middle-earth is 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 done. It's, they're not totally leaving, but they're going to be in decline from here, right? That that shift, which Tolkien later puts at the end of the Third Age, right? And now the Dominion of you know the time of the Firstborn is done, and the time of the Dominion of Men has come. That moment is happening here at the War of Wrath in these earlier versions, right? When we get the Second Age and the Third Age coming into the picture, that's going to shift, right? But for now, this is the big moment. This is the culmination of all of this of all of this history. So that it would be invested with that kind of apocalyptic sense seems to me to make sense. Um, okay, one last thing. And then I will A, have gotten through all 17 of my slides and B, left myself enough time still to go back over larger conclusions. So... I just wanted to point that out. Um, last point. 51 to 255. This time is called the Siege of Angband, and was a time of bliss, and the world had peace and light, and Beleriand became exceedingly fair, and men waxed and multiplied and spread, and had converse with the dark elves of the east, and learned much of them. And they heard rumors of the blessed realms of the west, and of the powers that dwelt there, and many in their wanderings moved slowly thither. See what this describes? See what happens here? Um we seem to be getting a glimpse of how things might have been. Right? How things might have been. I was talking about, you know, I was talking earlier when looking at the sketch and the Quinta about the Valar bringing the elves over to Valinar and the evidence in the text that that was a mistake by them. Um, here we see the elves doing their jobs, right? Look at what happens when you have elves in Middle-earth not being stamped under the boot of Morgoth, right? When we have a brief hiatus from Morgoth stomping and them not pulled off into Valinor and instead being here and filling Middle-earth with their own creative influence, what happens? The world had peace and light. It's a time of bliss. The world had peace and light. Beleriand became exceedingly fair. Right? Beleriand is blessed by their presence. It becomes more beautiful. Beleriand, you know, comes closer to its perfection than it would ever have done had the elves stayed in Valinor. Had the Noldor not come back, Beleriand would not have been as blessed. Right? How might it have been had they never left? Right? And more. Men waxed and multiplied and spread and had converse with the Dark Elves of the East. Met and meet the Elves. The Dark Elves, right? The Elves who were left behind. What's the consequence of them meeting these, these Elves who have themselves 
grown up without the influence of the Valar, you know, without the assistance of the Valar and the training and tutelage of the Valar. Yet even the Dark Elves, who have, actu- who have actively rejected the Valar, even they pro- seem to provide a blessing to men when they met them. Right? The men learned much of them. And they heard rumors of the blessed realms of the West and the powers that dwelt there. Even from the Dark Elves who rejected it. What is the effect of that meaning? Uh, of that meeting, that the idea of the blessed realms of the West and the powers that dwelt there come to the men and they gravitate towards the West, seeking the light, right? How much better might that have happened had the elves, all of the elves, stayed in Middle-earth with the help of the Valar, right? Not come with us and some of them saying no, the elves wouldn't have been divided. Not in that way, anyway, had the Valar just come over and been like, hey, you're here, that's awesome, why don't you stay and we'll help, right? Um, it, how, how much more would the men have learned, right? And what might their relationship with the powers and the light of the West have been had they had the elves themselves under the tutelage of the Valar there in Middle-earth? The, you know, if had the elves remained in Middle-earth as the delegated representatives of the Valar, as the Valar were the delegated representatives of Eru, what might the, how might the humans have grown up then, right? Anyway, I mean, these are, of course, unanswerable questions. Nothing, you know, none of that actually happens, so we don't know. But it's, um, but it's kind of neat. So that, that's what I loved about this, this passage. It gives that, that kind of glimpse of, uh, Sort of of what of what might have been. Um, anyway, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Um, sorry, my favorite leaf by nickel quote. Conclusions. Let's back up now. Let's return to the big picture. So, having looked at the the, the annals of Beleriand, let's piece this back together. Let's just kind of look at the whole book start with a sketch. 1926. He sits down. He's been writing the way of the children of Hurin. He wants to give that to somebody else, but boy, does that thing need some context, right? So he does a a background plot summary in order to provide context for the way of the children of Hurin. 1926 sketch. A few years later, he sits down and writes the Quinta. I'm going to take this thing, you know, this plot summary thing, takes on a life of its own, I'm going to expand this plot summary thing, and I'm going to turn it into a brief but detailed and lovely history, right? Because, you know, I, like, the more I think about it, the more, he, you know, the more he thinks about it, the more he seems to like having this sort of short version of the story, right? So different from the Book of Lost Tales and its genre. So, okay, so we get in the Quinta a full picture of the history of Middle-earth, um, beautiful but concisely uh, uh, done, Right? Then what happens? Expanded world building, right? He starts fleshing out the world and investing in it. He draws the maps, right? All these different maps. He draws the diagrams. He writes the embarcanta. Here's how the world works, right? Here's how it functions. And here's what that history looks like, right? Um, he writes the Annals of Beleriand next, the modern English version. Let's do a... Cr- okay, so how do these stories really line up? Right? What patterns can we see when we lay it all out and make it explicit? So let me do a, you know, a tale of years thing, right? Showing how this stuff all fits together. 
I do believe it's something that was designed to be presented, but it's 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 designed to be presented in that mode, in that in that cursory uh, summary, you know, um, Turin kills Beleg by misadventure um, uh, uh, sense, right? Um, showing how it all fits together. Then what's next? Old English translation of the Annals of Beleriand, right? Because that would be authentic. We saw him playing with that with the Quenta. We see him doing the same thing with the Annals of Beleriand, right? Because, hey, back to Alfwina, right? This is Alfwina. We we saw he never left that behind. We had that frame still referred to at the end of the Quenta, right? So, so yeah, so, you know, he's Tolkien, right? He's like, hey, I'm going to do an Anglo-Saxon translation because I can, and I love it. And so so here's what Alfwina would have really written, right? But again, the inspiration comes from the modern English version, right? Then... He's like, I love this idea, right? But I want to expand it. Having done as seemed quite sensible, having started with Beleriand, right? Let me, because that's what needed sorting out. There's no, like, conflicting timeline, not conflicting timelines, but complicated, convoluted, overlapping timelines. The story of the Valar is pretty linear, Right from the making of the lamps through the you know creation, making of the lamps, lighting you know the 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 the, the growth of the trees through the darkening, it's it's still a pretty linear story, right? So he doesn't need the annals for the same reason he needs the annals. He doesn't get the same use out of the annals of Valinor that he got out of the annals of Beleriand, right? But that's okay because that's not what he's doing anymore, right? Now he's in full performance mode. Now having done the annals thing. And having started the translation into Anglo-Saxon, he's like, oh, this is cool, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's do the Annals of Valinor in Anglo-Saxon, right? Let's just, let's just go full Alfwina on this story. And we'll get, you know, so, so we'll start at the beginning, at the very beginning. We'll do the whole Annals of Valinor. And so he writes the Old English Annals of Valinor. Then he writes a modern English translation of the Annals of Valinor, which is now it's in that halfway state, right? It's become a more full performance. It's not just that list. He's kind of shifted away from that genre because he seems to be kind of getting into trying to tell it the way that Alfwina would tell it, right? And Alfwina wouldn't necessarily tell it in the tone of the Annals of Beleriand, that kind of just-the-facts perfunctory uh, uh, performance, right? And so that's where it gets in. That's the last thing, then, that he would have written of all these things that we get in this book. Now, keep in mind, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? I am not saying I knew this happened. I, this is not insight on my part. I'm not, don't take this to the bank. Don't go telling people I've said authoritatively that this is what really happened. This is just my theory. This, this is the conclusion that I draw based on what I read here in this book. Based on the evidence that we see here, this is the conclusion that I would draw. Might be completely wrong. Um, but I think it's plausible. Um, I think it works really well. Um, and just because Christopher Tolkien resists drawing these kinds of conclusions doesn't mean I have to resist drawing those conclusions, uh, though I will try to be sufficiently diffident about it. Um, anyway... But I think it's I think it's really interesting to see and what again what when I what I was emphasizing last time, I think it's really fascinating to see how this thing called the Silmarillion is uh, is really growing and, and the form that it's beginning to take. Remember those three those three books, right? The two books of the Annals and the Quenta, um, and of course, don't forget the epic poetry, right? Um, 
how does this timeline fit with the writing of The Hobbit? The writing of The Hobbit is going on in the earlier bits. The writing of The Hobbit happens, the drafting of The Hobbit, it's being revised, remember it's published in 1937, but it's being drafted between like 1930 and 1933. So at the time he's writing The Quenta is when he's writing chapter one of The Hobbit. So you know that's why I was talking about the overlap there, um, right in that right in that time. So a bunch of this stuff is probably written after he had written the Hobbit down. That is like the Ambarcanta, uh, the Annals stuff. It's probably later than the Hobbit. A lot of this is really unclear. I mean, dating these manuscripts is really tricky. Christopher Tolkien is is often not quite sure about the dating. Um, John Ratliff, I'm relying on John Ratliff and the history of The Hobbit for the dating of the Hobbit manuscripts. That's also kind of unclear, right? There's, 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 there's evidence to be adduced, but um, there's also a bunch of contradictory evidence, which is kind of hard to know what to do with. Um, so, uh, anyway, but, but, but yeah, so The Hobbit comes in this period. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say by the time we get to this, we get the Silmarillion developed to the point where it is at the end of this book, The Hobbit's done. That, I think, is pretty clear. Um, so, anyway. Um, sorry, Roy is asking complicated questions. Roy says, but the point is that we see simultaneous creations from Tolkien, but still seemingly separate in his mind. Kind of. In the first drafts, they're clearly not separate. Um, if you read the very earliest drafts of the of chapter one of The Hobbit, um, Bilbo refers it, it refers explicitly to Baron and Luthien, and dates it like Baron and Luthien just happened a hundred years ago. Um, I from when Bilbo's in his sitting room. Um, and so th- there's there's clear reference. I, again, you know, the, the, the Mirkwood isn't just like Taranafuin. It is Taranafuin. The necromancer isn't just like Thu when he flees from Huan and Luthien and establishes a new fortress uh, in Tower Nefuen. It is that. Like, that's why the Necromancer has a tower in, 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 in Mirkwood. So, um, and oh, Arthur, not true of the Arkenstone. At the beginning, at the beginning, the Arkenstone is much later. At the beginning, in his initial concept, his initial impulse with the Hobbit seems to have been to connect it to make it a part of this story. But he took that out very quickly. He cut those references. Um, and what when he goes back to the elements, Elrond, the references to Gondolin, um, the uh, uh, the reference to the or- to the the elf and, and dwarf conflicts of times past, um, uh, all that stuff. Um, he's doing something different. It seems clearly... Because it's, as I've mentioned before, as I mentioned when we were talking about Elrond, back when we were doing the Quenta, actually contradictory. It, it is inconsistent with what we see. Um, what he says of Gondolin in The Hobbit does not fit the story of Gondolin. Anything. 
by the end of the Annals of Beleriand and everything he ever wrote about Gondolin before, none of it fits exactly what Tolkien says about Gondolin in The Hobbit. It just doesn't. Um, I therefore conclude he's recycling the name Gondolin and, in a sense, the concept of Gondolin as glorious, ancient, elvish city that was destroyed. Right? So we get that mythic sense of the of the lost splendor of the past and the tragedy, the ancient tragedy suffered by the elves. Those elements, therefore, are brought into the story through this mythic reference to Gondolin. But it is not actually alluding to the story of Gondolin as he has been telling it. Um, goblins would not have stories to pass down about being hunted by the elves in the hills around Gondolin which is what is said in chapter 4 of The Hobbit. That would not have happened. Gondolin was unknown. There were no stories until the sack, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. So, Yana, yes, in The Hobbit, Gondolin doesn't feel like it's the countless millennia ago that it will become when The Hobbit takes place in the Third Age. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It doesn't seem like... But it is an indefinite period of time ago. Remember, like I said, he he rejected the explicit connection. When think about the think about the your your times here. Let's 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 consult. Okay, hang on. Let's work this out right here and now. I didn't think about this before, but let's think about it right now. Okay, I'm going to the annals of Beleriand here. When let's date uh, Baron and Luthien. Okay. Um. Morgoth's taking Tolsirian there. Uh, Hurin weds Morwen, so that's too late. Okay, 163 and 4. Okay, so 163 and 4 is the date of the great jest of Baron and Luthien. So the whole Baron and Luthien story happens between 63 and 64. So that means that according to the chronology of the annals, that Bilbo, he was projecting Bilbo's story, well... In the middle of the War of Wrath. Oh, that doesn't really work all that well. But how much time... Well, let's just ask, how much time between that and the fall of Gondolin? Okay. So one of the things, notice that this suggests that reference to a hundred years suggests that that reference in the... I think it's in the Prifton fragment of Chapter 1 of The Hobbit comes earlier, probably, than the Annals of Beleriand. Right? Because he wouldn't have said a hundred years. Because a hundred years, again, puts him smack in the middle of, uh, of the War of Wrath. So when do we get the fall of Gondolin? Wanderers from Gondolin can reach the mouth of Sirion. Uh, 207. So we're talking about 43, 44 years, right? 43, 44 years between Baron and Luthien and the fall of Gondolin, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it becomes a, a sort of a problem, right? If Bilbo is taking place within the immediate context of the Baron and Luthien story, then Gondolin fell like the day before yesterday, right? I mean, it was like just... much. It happened much more recently than, say, for instance, Thorin's father's incarceration by the necromancer, um, right? So, so yeah, again, he's rejected it. This is what I... My point is not that that's how we're supposed to read those references to Gondolin in The Hobbit. It's obvious that we're not, 
right? This is why I'm, I feel very confident that by the time we get to chapter 3 of The Hobbit, by the time we get so far in the story as chapter 3, he's dropped it. He's clearly dropped it. He doesn't. He is no longer fitting Bilbo's story into the chronological sequence of the of the of the story of Beleriand at all. It's not part of the story of Beleriand. Instead, we're going to Plan B, and Plan B is recycle elements of the story of Beleriand and use them in the Hobbit. We want a half half elfin dude. Yeah, let's call him Elrond, right? And say he's related to heroes of old who had both human and elvish. Uh, 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 blood, as if there were a whole bunches of them, right? Um, not quite like Elrond. So the story of Gondolin, but not quite like Gondolin, and certainly not dated like Gondolin. Um, let's have a an elven king who lives in caves next to a river and used to fight with dwarves, or some there were fights with dwarves at some point, um, but it's not exactly, but it's not the same king. The elven king in The Hobbit is not Thingol. Clearly not Thingol. Um, I am utterly... I utterly reject... Some people want to suggest that maybe because he's not named, maybe he really was Thingol. Balderdash. That is absolutely bupkis. I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe it is he's got no wife. You can't have Thingol with no Melian and no Luthien. Right? Okay, maybe it's maybe he's in the post-Luthien period, but he's got no wife. You do, there is a zero percent. Ch- if that were Thingol, he did. It would at least be mentioned. There is just, I mean, there's there's no excuse. Um, an Elven, you know, a Thingol without Melian even on the horizon is not Thingol. It's a different story. I don't care. Even if he did name him Thingol, I would say he was a different character. Like I say, Elrond is a different character. So. Arkenstone, same thing. We're recycling, right? We're, that's that's the mode he's in. Then he goes backwards the other way and recontextualizes it, right? Um, anyway, okay. But I'm rambling now, and Roy provoked me to spend an extra ten minutes bringing the Hobbit uh, into this, into this. Yeah, James. Yeah, good. James points. <laughs> James carrying on Roy's good work. James is referring to that paragraph in The Hobbit about the Deep Elves, the Light Elves, and the Sea Elves, and that that feels uh, like more than just recycling. Um, I see what you mean. I mean, it's certainly way more detailed than the other, and it fits, unlike the other. But I still think all that that paragraph... I mean, look at that paragraph. All that paragraph is doing is sort of an appeal to the myth of elf history, right? Um, it's not, let me connect this to the story of elves of the first age, right? It's rather saying, it's wanting us to think about, we're meeting elves for the second time, right? We met them in Rivendell. We're meeting them, now. these are wood elves. Um, I just read that chapter today, by the way. I just, today I, I read, I reread chapter eight of The Hobbit. That's where I am in my annual reread, and uh, I was really struck this afternoon by the line: um, "The people were wood elves, of course." It's the "of course" that really jumped out at me. The people were wood elves, of course, um, and I love it when when the Hobbit narrator does that. Um, just like when he says about the trolls, like for trolls, as you probably know, turn into stone when the sun comes. Like, well, why would they know that, right? Um, but that's how the narrator of The Hobbit kind of brings us in, right? Um, I love those things about the, the the Hobbit narrator, and I miss him in some sometimes um, in Tolkien's other works. But anyhow, um, 
the people were wood elves, of course, right? So uh, uh, James, in that moment, were contextualizing. What does that mean? Don't forget that most people are still, when you say elf to somebody in 1937, they're still mostly thinking of Tinkerbell, right? They're mostly thinking of, of cowslip fairies, right? So um, we already have had one corrective to that, that's what Gondolin was doing, right? No, 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 no. Not cowslip fairies, right? Big stories. Tragic histories, right? Epic wars in times past with goblins and dragons. That's elves, right? Oh, okay, right. Not. Got it. Right. Something different. These were wood elves, of course. Oh, so wood elves are the... Okay, so wood elves are the little ones, right? No, no, no. No, not so much, right? So instead, here we get... So here he pulls out this list of names, right? He pulls out the mythic concept of the migration of the elves and them going to fairy and coming back, though, again, he gives no details and it has no context at all, right? But what it does is it provides a mythic background for elves. He's got that story, right? So he gives it. And he uses the names, because they're cool, right? Um... Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's, that, for me, that all works, right? It works really well. Now, I'm going to end with Tim's comment. Timothy Fisher, uh, says, uh, he says, I know you won't agree to this, but perhaps all the references, all these references are, uh, uh, are Bilbo himself confused, um, you know, his own confused references to rumors of Elvish history. Maybe Gondolin and Elrond uh, don't line up exactly with the with the story because Bilbo just screwed it up. I love that. I'm perfectly willing to agree with that, Timothy. In retrospect, right? That's sort of the genius of what Tolkien does. And I love this. Absolutely love this. Is that how it happened? No, that's not how it happened, right? He was not thinking that way when he wrote those words. So if we're thinking about the evolution of The Hobbit as a story, and where The Hobbit comes from, and what is, the, you know, so if we're thinking about, you know, the 1930s, a decade in the life of Tolkien's brain, right? If that's the topic of our conversation, we can't talk that way, Timothy, right? Because that's after the fact fictional recontextualization of the story, right? But we don't have to just talk about, you know, a decade in the brain of J.R.R. Tolkien. We can talk about this story. The way that Tolkien is able to integrate that and the character of Bilbo that he builds, Timothy, I love the way in which you can explain it that way, right? With Tolkien, you can almost always do this. You can answer almost all questions in one of two ways. From inside the story or from outside the story. Using the metaphor that I've used before, you can be you can be looking at the story, or you can be looking along the story. I'm using C.S. Lewis vocabulary here, which I don't have time to explain because it's already almost midnight. Um, but, and I've already kept you guys way too late. What am I doing? Next week, we're supposed to be answering questions. By golly, save these things for next week for crying out loud. Email me this stuff. You want me to explain what I mean by looking at or looking along? I'd be happy to do that. I'll do it next week. What a sucker I am. So, 
<laughs> bring these questions. Don't forget, send me questions. I want to have to go. Well, I'm done, man. I finished. I totally wrapped this thing up in seven weeks. Never thought I'd do that. I originally scheduled week eight because I totally thought I would be behind. I have been a uh, uh, a pig that just the, the paragon of efficiency during this class. So, um, um, uh, so we're done. If you guys don't have questions to ask for next time, I don't have anything to talk about. So we'll, we'll, we'll have an extremely short class. Send me, um, um, uh, send me, uh, send me questions. Okay, send me questions. Ask stuff during class next time. Let's let's do this. So I'll come back. You want me to explain this more? I'll come back to this. We'll talk about this more next time. But I am I am done doing next week's questions over time this week. All right, cool. Thanks. Um, but they were very good questions anyway, so I couldn't resist. Thanks, everybody. Good night. I will see you guys next week for our final discussion of Shaping of Middle-Earth, and I promise I will have a, uh, a, a Dracula schedule for you. So we'll, we'll, get that. we'll get that set up. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next week. Bye now.